You're listening to Lost in Sound, a podcast exploring music, identity, and the future. My name's Paul Hanford. I've always believed that one of the best ways we come together is through music. And through this series, I'm looking at how music can and is bringing us together now and in the future. From my base in Berlin, we'll be meeting artists from a range of disciplines from all across the world who are drawing on music right now, some already exploring new ways of doing this. In this episode, I met with Robert Henker, the driving force in the pioneering techno project Monolake, and also one of the original co-founders of Ableton Live. Hey, how are you doing? I hope you're having a really lovely one. You can hear the bells of midday going behind me here. I'm in Berlin in Kreuzberg, uh, along the canal, um, week um, four, I think, of lockdown two, and there's lots of swans about. I think they've seen my little fluffy thing on the top of my recorder, and they think it's bread, but maybe that's an unfair assumption of, of swan's intellect. Maybe they know it is a digital recorder, and they want to do their own podcast as well, Swan Weekly or something. Um, I hope you're good. I was feeling quite reflective earlier. It's coming up to three years now since I've been living in Berlin and kind of made me think about like the journey I've been on. Before I got here, I was a full-time DJ in London and I might be the only person to ever move to Berlin to actually stop being a DJ but one of the things that did surprise me when I got here is that I don't think I went clubbing as much as I imagined I would. I think I kind of had this picture that I'd be like in Berghain every other weekend for most of the weekend. But when I got here, I just kind of like, oh, I just got really, really cozy and into the idea of waking up and having a nice cup of tea in bed. But now that I mean, it's eight months since clubs have closed in their normal capacity. I know they kind of opened a little bit in the summer in a kind of distanced way, but in their normal way, it's been eight months. And I've been feeling quite wistful about that, about, to me, as someone that never really, really, really went full-on club, I miss them. I'm looking forward to dancing again, and I kind of think about people that really 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 do need that weekly escape that weekly finding themselves and I think particularly because today I've also been editing what you're about to hear which is an interview I've been meaning to put out for ages today you're about to hear what happened when I met up with Robert Henker 
Robert is one of the true founding pioneers of techno in Berlin, most famously with Monolake, a project he started in 1995 with Gerhard Berls. The two would go on to found the music software company Ableton Live. I caught up with him before lockdown. This interview actually happened in April 2019 when he invited me round to his apartment and studio for a chat. Little did we know then during having our conversation that the club culture, the spaces he's talking about at the time, would be something that right now we can only dream about. And do you mind if I keep the headphones on? Is that oh, okay? sure. Brilliant. It just helps to kind of uh, check in case there's any peaks. And, like, yeah, yeah, really totally fine. Brilliant. Uh, as I'm sure you're aware of these kind of things yourself. But... You never know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't assume anything. <laughs> yeah, um, could we start by you introducing yourself? My name is Robert Henke. Uh, we are in my apartment in Berlin-Kreuzberg. And I make electronic music. I am massively involved with a music software company and I do audiovisual installations. Um, going right back to the beginning, how did music come into your life? Uh, I come from a family background of engineers and being an artist was never considered an option. But at some point as a teenager, I discovered Jean-Michel Jarre. <laughs> and that was something which I have never heard about. Uh, I didn't experience something like that. And I immediately found the, this sonic journey very fascinating. And that was my introduction into electronic music. And then I kind of sneaked my way into being creative via this technical path of becoming a sound engineer and studying computer science with the idea of working in the field of computer-based music. And, well, that's how it basically came together. And was the engineering side of it a, a, a side that kind of felt to you from your background more of a kind of a valid way to explain to family rather than just becoming a straightforward musician? Well, I, I didn't consider myself an artist. And... I just thought I, I like doing these things. Mm. And it took me very, very long till I recognized that actually I am living and operating as an artist and that the engineering part is a, a valid part of my artistic expression. So I, I found there was a contradiction between being an engineer and being an artist until I understood that there's a lot of artistic thinking in engineering. There's a lot of artistic thinking even in science. And being an artist working with modern technology or with technology in general is something that nicely combines uh, those seemingly separate fields. Was there a, um, an, an actual moment when you kind of, or, or like an, an, an event or something where this kind of came to you? Not really. It was something that just developed over time. But the most significant change in my life uh, was when I moved to Berlin pretty much right after finishing school. Because here I was exposed at the same time with uh, academic electronic music and with writing software for creating sound and thinking about music in very abstract uh, compositional terms. 
but I also uh, went to a Tresor and clubs like that and discovered something that I was not aware of before. And this combination of brutal, minimalist, loud, uh, improvised electronic dance music and this highly sophisticated uh, and subtle and complex world of academic computer music, uh, that definitely opened doors to, for me because I understood that within those two poles, everything is possible and I could just do whatever I like. What era were we talking about? Is this the early, early 1990s? 1990s yeah. yeah. And what were your initial impressions of arriving in Berlin as a place like the geography and the, the people? Well, I mean, the, the people was the most important part. I felt the urge to uh, leave Munich where I was born because it was not conservative. It was reactionary. It was... Um, borderline fascistic at some aspects. It was, if, if you were feeling differently, looking differently, had a different mindset than the average citizen, you had a pretty hard time, especially as a teenager. And so I was kind of an outlaw in Munich and I didn't have many friends and I was unhappy. And moving to Berlin immediately changed this because The first thing I noticed here is uh, I'm not the outlaw anymore because uh, every day I see 500 people who look more strange, more eccentric, uh, more of the mainstream track than I will ever be. And that was quite liberating because it also meant that whatever I like to do, uh, I will not be uh, such an outlaw anymore. I will just fit in. Mm because everyone was an outlaw here in one way or the other. And that gave me the, the, the liberty to explore a lot of things that I found interesting. Uh, personal things, sexual things, uh, but of course also artistic things. And that was the beauty of Berlin in the post-DDR uh, era. East Berlin was basically an empty playground. There were so many empty buildings in East Berlin, which you could just... Uh, used to build your own club. Uh, there was no necessity to earn money with that. Living in Berlin was insanely cheap and spaces were there in abundance. So if you want to do a four-channel sound installation, well, all you need to do is you need to find four speakers, uh, two amps and uh, some means to create sound. And you had your own club, gallery, exploration, laboratory space. And you invited your friends and your friends came and we all had a good time. It, this seems to be, from a nowadays perspective, a different planet. This is not existing anymore. Uh, but this was just the freedom we had. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the, the cultural developments in the city came from that, came from the fact that you could experiment with whatever you like because... Uh, there was just no necessity to be in any way commercially successful. And a lot of people in this city had a very strong idea that the type of culture we are interested in should not be commercial. So, for instance, the fact that the DJ is not elevated and that the DJ has no special status uh, and is just a person who makes sure that there's uh, the music going on uh, and that the music itself 
has no lyrics and uh, is devoid of all the attributes of pop music that was important to many mm -hmm. for many of us because we like this idea that there is I wouldn't say a, a democratic access to things, but we were definitely opposing this idea of the star, which you have to uh, admire and which is a different person than you are. The, the DJ was one of us. And so the, the switch between I'm consuming something or I'm participating was, was very fluent. So, and, uh, That was, in retrospective, insanely beautiful. Do you feel that any of these kind of utopian um, values, I guess, um, have managed to successfully retain themselves within the way that Berlin is becoming increasingly more gentrified, globalized? Well, I, I guess one has to separate... A, a concept or an idea from which parts of that you can actually live. And that's true in many aspects of life. And it's certainly true for this specific type of culture we explored in the 90s. Uh, the concept is there and we all know that it can work very well. And that means we can still strive for finding places, mental spaces, physical spaces, which allow to do this. Uh, the other side, of course, is that it became much more challenging and difficult to establish these spaces uh, simply due to the fact that real estate is the current biggest issue in the city. Uh, it became just really, really difficult to find a physical space where you can explore those ideas. And that's, of course, a bit of a, a worrying situation. But I believe that the ideas are still valid and that with these ideas in mind, it will still be possible to, to find these niches for yourself. And if, if these niches uh, transform themselves into online communities, uh, seems also to be a, a valid expression of it. Mm. In a way, it seems like uh, the more online and more digital things seem to be like a progression anyway of the way human energy is going. I, I guess. But the only thing, of course, is uh, just as in, in normal business life, this idea of teleconferencing did not replace meeting a person mm. in person uh, because some of the best ideas just come up if you go to dinner together and um, are not deliberately thinking about work anymore. In, in the same way, of course, a lot of artistic outcome also is not the result of having 10 Skype meetings and sending 20 papers from A to B, but walking in the park and saying, what do you think about this? Yeah, that's great. Uh, do you think we could incorporate this in our work? No way, but hmm, yes, maybe. Uh, now, these... Uh, These interesting moments where ideas just accumulate out of uh, outside factors which are in favor of these ideas emerging, that uh, still seems to feel different if you have a way of physically interacting with potential collaboration partners uh, versus meeting them 
in the virtual community. But then again, uh, that's me saying this as uh, a oldish person uh, who knows if this is the same thing for someone who is 20. Mm. You know, if, if you grow up with the fact that all your collaborations happen online, uh, you might not consider it important anymore to for your creative uh, experiments that you have to be physically close to each other. Mm. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't rule this out. I can rule it out for myself. You know, when you get into someone's house and you can smell that they've already made coffee. Well, it was kind of like this at Robert's, except that morning he'd already be making sound. We went through to his studio where the synths and electronic stuff was already on. One of the luxuries I have is that my workspace is here. Wow, this is amazing. And <clears throat> I was writing a new plugin. And as a result of this new plugin, uh, I just created a eight-channel test case if of some Eno-esque... music the most thing I feel is like a sense very obviously it goes without saying a sense of space but I started to wonder if you have synesthesia um, <clears throat> this is two questions I guess uh, the what I always noticed for myself is what music did to me especially electronic music as a teenager was I I felt mentally very trapped in Munich and music was an amazing escape and that escape of course has uh, a metaphysical quality of opening up space you see i can i can sit in my apartment uh, in my little room in my parents house uh, in the suburb of munich uh, in a tiny room and have my headphones and i'm somewhere in an infinitely large space, uh, which is filled by my, my imagination. And I think this is such a, a dominating experience of my, my youth that I was always looking, and I am still looking, for ways to express this, uh, this beautiful, open, wide, shimmering space that music provided to me mm. as, as a mental state. So these, these long, lush reverbs that seem to end nowhere and make you forget that you look, that you're sitting in front of two speakers. That is something I find still remarkable. And I still judge music a lot by the space it creates, be it a mental space or an acoustic space or a physical space. If music has this, this spatial quality to it, then I I appreciate it. 
and that's the reason for for me for being so amazed by by space and what was the other part of the question um, kind of going into synesthesia ah right yeah. um n not not in this obvious way that mm. i can say ah oh, this is a such a nice lush green chord um, <laughs> <laughs> you don't literally get an ice cream mixed up with a guitar <laughs> exactly <laughs> so it, it doesn't work like this mm. uh, but i'm i'm happy in in describing sounds in terms of shapes mm. and i had a experience years ago when uh, Rashad Becker was uh, with me mastering one of our my records and he he said to me oh, you know these 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 little uh, silver metal balls here uh, they need to be more in the foreground and it was not necessary to explain what he meant with these little metal balls you know there were no metal sounds in this piece It was just that there were some sounds in this piece which obviously had the shape of little metal balls. Mm -hmm. And it, I found it remarkable that we, we could communicate in these terms uh, about music. And that, that there was not even a, the slightest uh, feeling of necessity of anyone to, to explain the language used because it was so obvious. And so in, in, in this way, music, music has a, a shape that I can describe or, uh, and that, that texture that I can relate to in, in, in terms of, of a, a physical object, even if it's abstract or a, a color, a texture. If someone says that it sounds quite gray, uh, I, I have an idea. Uh, and if someone says, this is, uh, I, I like this deep blue in here. Uh, that's also clear. I mean, there's other colors which are pretty difficult to define musically. You know, like uh, I don't. Uh, this guitar is too yellow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I can picture something like that. I have a, a Herbie Hancock album that I called the Round Record. Um, I think it was Sextant. A few friends mm -hmm. who were listening to it. We just ended up staring at it and said, "This is a really round record." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A roundness is definitely a term that makes sense. Definitely. Like, yeah. Especially if you think about grooves. Mm -hmm. uh, grooves have definitely physical shapes. Yeah. And, you know, like a, a square groove that's clear or a round groove or there's this kind of blobby moving thing here. Mm. Uh, I, th I think really good, uh, like old analog uh, sound equipment as well can sometimes kind of almost sort of feel like it's got a a kind of fireplace heat to it, I find, as well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, of course, this is kind of the, a process which uh, is a, a feedback system. So we, we associate a certain type of sound with a certain technology which we either still personally experienced or is so close in our um, history that there's a connotation likely this kind of crackling of a record, which immediately is nostalgia. So you get these cues which put you in a, in a certain uh, in a certain mood or in a certain time reference. And the funny thing is that nowadays you can play with all these mm. these things because you know everything that has been done in the history is somehow available as material, which means it's, it 
you know, if you want to have something sounding like the 80s, go for it, do it. Mm. I mean, there's enough people who are doing it, right? So uh, it's much more difficult to imagine doing something that sounds like 230. <laughs> 2030. Unless it becomes that becomes a nostalgic, retro, futuristic kind of. Oh, of course, like like 1970 science fiction. Yeah. Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> what in the uh, geography around you in Berlin, in, in spi- like in contemporary times, in, in, um, inspires you with sound? You mean outside the, the music world or inside yeah, the music outside, world? Outside the music world, yeah, the, the the physical landscape, or maybe the social social or physical landscape. Yeah. Hmm. That's a surprisingly difficult to answer question. <laughs> it sounds like it would be easy, doesn't it? But yeah, yeah. You, you never know. You never know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess there's there's at, at least two perspectives here. The one perspective is that I am actually trying to at times minimize the external input because I have so many things inside my head that I still want to explore and where I feel if I get even more external input, it will be even harder to find my own language. Uh, Because in all these years of doing things and living on this planet, I collected so much input that I'd rather want to create output. So <clears throat> in, in, in some way, I'm, I'm deliberately shutting down external input, especially if it might be something that has an impact on my art. Uh, but uh, on the other side, I think the, the, the most significant input I get comes not from the city in itself, but from a few selected people who are living here and with whom I have an exchange about my work or my type of work or club culture or uh, digital arts and things like that. So it's not necessarily Berlin in itself that has the impact, But, of course, Berlin acts as a catalyst for the situations to happen because the other people are here because of Berlin. So it's like a port. Exactly. Berlin acts as a port to, to funnel certain common interests. And, well, despite all that, of course, sitting outside in the summer and drinking a coffee in the morning... Uh, or occasionally, much too rare, going to Tempelhofer Feld and just experience this emptiness in the city, uh, or going to Berghain and being still amazed by the fact that this is just such a gorgeous place. Uh, that's, of course, inputs which I appreciate and which help me reassuring myself of what I'm doing. You know, if, if I don't feel like doing club music anymore, then I go uh, to a club because someone who I know is DJing or performing, and afterwards I know exactly again why I want to do that. Mm. So that's kind of a, a way to to gain some energy in, in moments where I'm stuck. So that kind of actually feeds into another question I was going to ask you about how 
you, because um, uh, I think the longer you work in any kind of artistic field, the more you get to understand how to uh, control uh, kind of creative blocks or, or kind of keep energy. Yes and no. Uh, of course, you develop your strategies. But that's unfortunately almost overcompensated by the fact that the more you know about what has been done before, the more critical you become about your own work. Because, you know, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, that, that chord progression, that reminds me to that uh, CD here. Uh, yeah, this rhythm. Yeah, well, this is kind of the classic electro beat. Uh, and so on. So mm. you always find that whatever you do, someone else has been doing it better before and you can point exactly to the reference here and say, no. but if you are young and in the, especially in the pre-internet area, uh, you know, you can do whatever you do and you, you simply think you're the first one to invent it. And this gives you all the freedom to just do it. Mm -hmm. And by thinking you are the first one who is doing it, in a way you are the first one because you do it your way. If you know exactly that someone has done very similar things before, uh, then you don't want to do something that is too close to that. So you try to do something else. And by doing something else, you might exactly not do what you really want to do, but something that is just defined by it's far away from that other thing. Uh, so I'm not sure if it's getting easier to create the, when you get older because you, you're getting so much more hesitant to do things. It's, it's very easy for me to go in a studio and create a, a classical basic channel chain reaction track in five minutes, but I would never dare to release anything like that. Even if yeah. someone else might be saying, hey, please, just just do it. Yeah. Mm. But I say, no, I can't. It's, it's, C, ma it's C minor. Sorry, can't do it. C minor. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. was Robert Henker I'd like to thank Robert so so much for being so patient <laughs> with me putting this episode out and for being so amenable and warm as a as a host uh, not only in his words but in inviting me into his place that day in April 2019 I think I, I think knowing the scientific aspect of what he does, I was expecting someone way more boffin-like. And yeah, he is kind of like a kind of a wise professor of electronic-ness sounds and, and, and stuff. But he was so warm and, um, and open in the way he kind of shared that and uh, invited me into his house. I definitely felt listening to that a royal tinge of bittersweetness in the way he was explaining 
his personal kind of way that clubbing and electronic music came into his life as a teenager and how music kind of opened up the space around him and how spaces around us particularly in clubs kind of have so often given us like a real sense of identity i never thought that something so simple as dancing with a group of people in a space would be something that would just be so out of reach and it's one of the things that i'm looking forward the most to doing you've been listening to lost and sound written and produced by me paul hanford title music by eso to Kieran Yates in the UK for mastering the levels. This episode is being hosted by Bear Radio, and you can check out other English language podcasts from Berlin by going on bearradio.org. And if you enjoyed listening, please hit subscribe and leave a comment. It really does help. And you can also help for production costs of making Lost and Sound by buying me a digital coffee at coffee.com. Link in the socials. Take care and speak to you soon.